Well, good morning, folks. Today, we're going to begin a new series uh, that I call the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> it's the, the series is, is one in which we're going to carefully read through uh, most of the book of, of Mark, most of the Gospel of Mark uh, in great detail. And, and the hope is uh, by paying close attention to the words, we might uh, make it more alive for us. You've heard it so many times. Uh, and that in my, my thesis is that it will really speak to our current situation. And I mention that because uh, as the old song goes, there's trouble in River City. I, I'm aware, and we've spoken about so much that uh, we're, we're tired, we're fatigued. We uh, here in our country and throughout the world or have been through a tough time. We're struggling. And I, and I think about uh, just all that we've experienced in my lifetime, how much change, uh, how much change in the social order we've absorbed, um, and how recently in the last decade, so many of our institutions have begun to erode or their standards erode. Uh, we've we've uh, experienced uh, an acceptance of much greater vulgarity in the in our leadership than we have we have uh, normally, and uh, we've seen a collapse of civility in our conversations. We've um, had a succession battle recently, which was uh, a first for our country, which really divided households, divided friends, uh, certainly divided uh, regions of our country. Uh, and as a part of that, we have seen a, a, a collapse of, of uh, notions of truth. Uh, uh, we've, we've, we've gone into a, a nihilistic phase where uh, there's a deep, deep skepticism about claims that are made from anybody who doesn't wear our own uh, Jersey. Um, and of course, as this graphic shows, we've experienced in the last year, marching in the streets, marching from the left, marching from the right. We've seen cities inflamed. We've seen a peaceful protest. We've seen violent protest. We've seen looting. And we have seen, as we all remember so well, just a few months ago, two months ago, uh, the assault on our Capitol. And of course, uh, that would be something we could celebrate in the sense of we got through it all and there's the hope that we are becoming a better nation through it all. And yet we still have the specter of uh, at least the potential for more violence ahead based upon what the FBI director Ray testified to Congress recently. So tough times here in River City as, uh, as we look back on our last year and look forward to the coming year. And uh, I, I want to just remind us that this is not unusual, that uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark is written in a time in which there was trouble, not just in, in one little town, one little city, but throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and, and the Gospel of Mark takes place, we believe it's written um, in a time uh, of, uh, you know, just after the Emperor Nero uh, was, or perhaps, uh, yeah, actually I should say just after is the most likely case, but perhaps before he, uh, it could have been written before he died, but it was certainly written sometime in the, in the, the, the vicinity of his um, custodianship of the empire between the years 65 and 70. And that was an incredible time. He, he uh, started his watch in the year 54 and, uh, and it was, wow, lots of trouble. There was uh, a revolt from the Parthians. That's the, uh, one of the old Iranian empires. 
Persian empires. Uh, it was called the Parthian Empire in, in 58. Uh, so imagine the quaking if you're, you know, part of the Roman Empire. So there's there's a revolt on the east in the, you know, from the, where the Parthians are actually attacking. They're not revolting. They're attacking the eastern flank. Um, then Britain on the western flank revolted um, and in uh, 59. And then the one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit more, Judah revolted in 66, and there was a Jewish war for several years. And then uh, the demise of Nero came about when Gaul, which, which, uh, which is the place we call France these days, um, uh, re- revolted, and actually Spain revolted, and Gaul uh, got involved, and they eventually uh, staged a coup, and Nero killed himself. Uh, one of the things that brought Nero down, made him vulnerable, was the Great Fire. We, we, we always are familiar with the, the metaphor of, of you know, of uh, fiddling while Rome burned, which was always attributed to Nero. That's uh, something that scholars weren't sure about. But he had something sort of like our COVID um, pandemic in the sense of there was this great fire that destroyed uh, 10 of the 14 districts of Rome, and he didn't manage it well. He was blamed for it. And uh, most of Rome was destroyed, and he and he began to rebuild it in a style that wasn't the customary style. He decided he was a big uh, fan of the Greek arts, and so he directed the rebuilding of Rome uh, uh, in his favorite Greek style, which of course was massive cultural change, which caused the people to turn against him. He also was one uh, where the generals who overthrew him said he had descended into vulgarity. Uh, he appeared in plays in roles that were inappropriate for. A Caesar, uh, and he needed a scapegoat. And as you guys will remember, the scapegoat that he chose was this new religion called Christianity. These there were Jew, a large Jewish Christian population. If you look at this map that I've got up there, you can see the little sections of yellow. That's where the Christians had spread by the time of Nero's watch, and uh, there was a big uh, group of of Christians that met in house churches. Now, they were an easy scapegoat because they were considered to be atheists. They did not uh, uh, worship the uh, pantheon of gods, the primary one of which was Nero himself. And uh, and so they were an easy scapegoat. They were a new religion. So the Jews were not persecuted in this as much as the Christians because the Christian, the Jews were sort of grandfathered in. Uh, the Christian uh group were considered innovation. And that was a threat to the empire. And so Nero famously persecuted them in ways I won't get into. Um, and one of the other things about Nero was he had a he he really ratcheted up the the uh, cult of the emperor, requiring everyone to worship him as God, which becomes a, a, a an important part of our story. Now, another part of the context, though, was that there was trouble also in Palestine. Um, the the people who lived in the region uh, really had had something sort of like what we have experienced in the last decade as well. But I want to just focus uh, on the last few years. In the spring of 66, fighting broke out in Caesarea, uh, which is a town on the on the coast, uh, between Jews and Greeks. And uh, that then led to all sorts of pogroms against the Jews. And Nero, uh, in the midst of all that, given his, his delicate sense of uh, of, the, of his pulse on the people's feelings, at that moment decided to order the expropriation of funds from the temple treasury, which was considered blasphemous, and the Jews just revolted in mass uh, in around Judah. And um, 
that led to mass dem demonstrations and then Roman troops fired on the protesters and then the Roman troops stormed the temple. So we had a real problem. Um, in Rome, Rome was uh, one of those empires that governed places like like Palestine with um, surrogates. And so they had a procreator there, but they also allowed the, the uh, you know, the, the procre procurator allowed the, the head of the temple, the, the high priest to pretty much govern the province. And, uh, and also uh, they had some of, of Herod the Great's sons that they allowed to govern in the Northern region. Well, when this war broke out, uh, people quickly chose sides and those who had been the puppets of Rome uh, became very much under siege themselves by their people because they were considered to be collaborationists. And, um, and so civil war broke out among the Jews and there was open war with Rome. Uh, and the Sicarii, a group of, militant, of militants of, across the, the spectrum, sort of like our Proud Boys and on the right and, the, and others on the left, uh, they, they were very, very violent. And uh, they started knocking off uh, the, the collaborationists one by one until the time, by the end of the war, the Sadducee party was wiped out. And at the end of the war, all that was left uh, in terms of, uh, of the Jewish people, in terms of political power, were the people that we know as the Pharisees and the people that we know as the Jewish Christians. And so those two were vying for uh, who would control the future of Judaism. Um, Rome... Uh, uh, tried to seize control of the situation. And so they sent a, a division down and the Jewish people led by the zealots uh, who were again, militant Pharisees in this case, mostly uh, uh, had the audacity to beat the Romans and to push them back. Uh, and this happened right when Nero was, uh, the coup on Nero was happening. So uh, the general who was coming down to uh, uh, absolutely destroy Jerusalem instead went back to Rome, declared himself emperor, sent his, sent his uh, protege uh, to, to Jerusalem. And all of people, all of the people in Palestine waited, knowing what was about to come. They knew they'd already experienced the scorched earth policy. They'd seen the crucifixions and they knew that because they had all the, the audacity to defeat Rome in a, in a skirmish that, uh, that Rome would get ransacked. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Rome uh, destroyed Jerusalem. And so there was an awful lot of trouble. And, and the Gospel of Mark is written right in the midst of this, as Christians have had a history of being persecuted in the last decade. And there has been so much craziness in the world from the political leadership. There has been so much division among the Jewish people of which from which they had sprung themselves. There was such partisanship uh, that uh, there were multiple warlords competing for leadership of the Jews. And in the midst of this, Jewish Christians in Palestine were being told, uh, to take up arms and to join a battle against the Romans. And, uh, and in Rome, the, the Jewish Christians were doing everything they can to prevent from being arrested and, and killed themselves. And so it was a very tense time. And out of that comes the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we think it was written by, traditionally, we say it's written by John Mark. We don't know who the author was, but uh, uh, when he wrote, this graphic shows the, uh, what, what, the, what 
Palestine looked like. I want to draw your attention to the Dead Sea and then that body of water up at the up north there. That marks where Galilee is. Uh, the little pink area to the left of that uh, upper one way up in the north is the province, if you will, of Galilee. 90 miles to the south, straight line there you can barely see here. A uh, you know the river that's the Jordan River and then you can see Jerusalem right here in the middle of that uh, you know near the Dead Sea. Um, well, uh, that that's where our story begins, and so Mark writes this gospel during this time, trying to help the Jewish Christians see their way forward, and also Gentile Christians, I should add, uh, particularly Gentile Christians, and so. What I wanted to share with you is the Gospel of Mark, the way I understand it, is rather extraordinary. It's like a big video in which uh, the action moves very, very, very fast. And so we have his prologue here, which has uh, five scenes, as I like to think of it. Um, and uh, in, in 15 verses, we have five different scenes that this basically tell us what's going to happen in the rest of his gospel. And so what I wanted to do now is walk us through these five scenes and get a feel for the subversive character of the gospel of Mark, how he speaks to his own generation, speaking to them the word of God. And I think it won't be too hard for us to see how that same word speaks to us in our time as well. Now, the first thing I'd like to say in, in scene one, my summary of what I think it teaches us is, is that in Jesus, we encounter God's eternally appointed king, uh, eternally anointed king, and, and all our self-exalted leadership uh, uh, claims are mere idolatry. Uh, so I think that's what we see. And, and it's interesting. Usually we read right past this first verse in the Gospel of Mark, um, the beginning of the good news, according to Jesus Christ, God's son. Seems like something you could just read right through, right? There's nothing really important there that we you know, don't already know. We've read it so many times. But for the people of the world who don't know this, this is a rather stunning claim. Uh, is it because it's, it's, it's quite a subversive claim. Um, and then he comes on to say, happened just as it was written. And he quotes Isaiah, look, I'm sending my messenger before you. He'll prepare your way uh, for the Lord, make his path straight, etc." What's stunning about that first verse is, is that we now recognize that Mark was doing something rather bold, that those first few words uh, imitate something that would have been very common to uh, the people of the Roman Empire. Uh, what he has used is what's known as an evangelion, which is, means the word good news. Um, and uh, this was... Uh, a, a language, the beginning language that he uses imitates the language that would have been promulgated throughout the, the empire in certain religious contexts, such as any of the worship of the emperor uh, at the cult of the empire in the shrines, uh, on, on, the, on the emperor's birthday, on the emperor's accession to power, and the like. Uh, and even on a forthcoming uh, royal visit, if the emperor was going to visit you, you would they have all these things that would be, would be published, and they would use language like you see there below. And I just want to draw your attention. This one is from 9 BC, but, there, but we, we have coins. We have all sorts of artifacts that help us to understand. This was part of the civic language that, with which everyone was familiar. And I want to draw your, your attention to some of these words here. 
Providence has given us Augusta, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humanity, sending him as a savior. So Caesar is the savior. The name given to Caesar is savior of the world, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and put all things in order. That's the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that is assured, as, as you've heard me say, through violence. And, and also putting things in order means keeping things in the way they have always been, pe- keeping people in the places they are assigned. Caesar, by his appearance, that word appearance there is the one for which we get epiphany. So the idea of epiphany comes from the royal visit by Caesar. Caesar excelled our expectations and surpassed all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he's done. And here's the big part. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of for the world of the good news that came by reason of him. The point being, the good news, the language of good news in God's son was that of Caesar. Now, what I wanted to suggest to you as we read in just this first verse, that Mark, the just in a few words, has, has set up what he's going to be telling us in the rest of this gospel. The first one being that... Uh, that 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 he that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not like there is a rivalry taking place on a level playing field, uh, as though Jesus and Caesar are two competitors competing for the same prize. You know, the same title. No, not at all. Messiah, and sonship and lordship, according to Mark, are inseparable from Jesus in uh, Jesus himself. Jesus is completely inseparable from his identity as Lord, Messiah, King, and Son. So Caesar's claims are simply pretentious idolatry. So from the perspective of Greco-Roman politics, the world is indeed turned upside down. Jesus's kingship and his sonship are Jesus's, not Caesar's. Also, there's a corollary to this that I'd like to mention, that the, the primacy of God in Jesus Christ means that uh, whatever we, however we think of peace and, uh, and, and, and how we are to live, um, we, we, we ought to be looking at Jesus to understand what those words mean. So with Jesus, what we see is the primacy of peace and humble service. So where the domination of Caesar is based on pacifying strength and torture, such as the cross, the dominion of Jesus produces a rather profound uh, reevaluation of what the world means when we speak of peace and order. And that's one of the things that we're going to see opening up in the Gospel of Mark. Pax Romana is a faux peace. And also we learn what the right ordering of the world is, this hierarchical ordering of the world that uh, was taken for granted in their time. And I would say, dare say, in our time, the Gospel of Mark speaks right into calling it what it is, a, uh, a, a power uh, play by those in power that that uh, keeps others in um, in uh, despair, and of course the gospel is going to call all such folks to freedom. So he continues, "Look, I am sending 
I am sending my messenger before you. He'll prepare your way. Uh, this language here looks like it doesn't have a lot in it, does it? He talks about the messenger, but what's actually uh, we actually see here are three verses from Scripture that have been conflated, put together in a very creative way that gives them a very powerful message in naming who this Jesus is. So, for example, in the Exodus. Uh, the promise of God was that he would send his angel in front of the people and guard them on the way so that they would be able to get to the place that God had prepared for them. So this sentence is, is present in that one. And then what we read from Malachi this, earlier today, that Tom read, you know, I, that's where we get this language. See, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before him. But notice this. It says, the, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I'll come back to that in a little bit. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And then from Isaiah 43, uh, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way. So all of those get combined um, in such a way where what we see is God's promise um, uh, you know, of sending an angel to protect the people is 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 uh, in you know in taking them through the wilderness is is expressed uh, in Malachi's last oracle in the Hebrew Scriptures as the promise to send a messenger to prepare the way for the age of salvation for the day of the Lord which was to come the day on which the Lord would turn and make everything right and so in according to Malachi. God would uh, prepare that way by sending someone in advance so that we'd have a chance to prepare for that day of reckoning. And uh, when it uh, gets combined with Isaiah 43, it actually says uh, that way of restoration is the sign. It's how we know when we see that day of restoration, when we look at that in Isaiah 43, we know that that's the day that the day of the Lord has been inaugurated. And I mentioned that they expected the messenger to appear at the temple. Well, we'll see more about that. But the main thing I don't want you to miss is that in seeing one, what we encounter is God eternally anointed king is Jesus. And we also see the pretentious nature of all our self-exalted leaders who pointed themselves rather than to humble service. Scene two gets... Get, you know, we get to real quickly, Mark, just a few verses later. And the, what I suggest we get out of this is that when our ascension, when our institutions crumble or burn, when we have that sense that they are crumbling and burning, or when they, in fact, are crumbling and burning, as, as we have seen in our own days here in the last year, well, God meets and restores us in that wilderness, God meets and restore us, restores us in that wilderness. And of course, this, these next few verses take us to John the baptizer, um, the one who dressed like Elijah. And as you know, he was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. And as, and as Mark says, everyone in Judea, a little bit of hyperbole here, all the people of Jerusalem were walking out. I want you to imagine that, walking those 15 miles out from the city, which was the heart of everything into the wilderness. They were going from the temple, not to the temple. They were going to the wilderness, to the river Jordan, to be baptized by John as they confessed their sins. And John announced, hey, someone stronger than me is coming, and I'm not worthy to be his servant. 
I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is familiar to you. I wanted to give you some context so you see how powerful these few words are from, from Mark. Because Malachi, the part we didn't read in chapter 4, has this. I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Elijah was going to return. Elijah would come and, and Elijah would come before the, uh, before the day of the Lord come to give us a chance to, to be prepared for that day of the Lord, because that day of the Lord includes judgment. And so Elijah is going to come and he's going to turn our hearts. He's going to cause us to turn around, to repent, to turn our hearts and the hearts of our children to back to their parents so that then in judgment, God would not render such a judgment that we would be destroyed. And so that was the that was the messianic expectation. So what do we see in scene two? Well, we see that um, this expectation of Elijah, and then we see Elijah, we know from other gospels, is, is dressed and eating locusts like Elijah. He's, you know, dressed in hair and all of that. Uh, and we see that He's doing something very unusual there. He is baptizing people for the remission of their sins, something that you can't do in Judaism. That can only be done through your participation in the worship. Where? At the temple. What's the temple? Well, if you know Isaiah 2, you know the temple is the place that on the day of the Lord, everybody's going to be streaming to the temple because the Jews will have lived in the right way and taught the world to love in the right way. And here we see that uh, contradicting that instead of streaming to the temple, the temple has judgment on it. Instead, the people are streaming into the wilderness. The day of the Lord has come. And so what is preparation? What preparation do we need? Well, we need to prepare for judgment. And we also need to prepare because once that happens, we're going to be given this huge outpouring of God's spirit. And so that's how John uh, prepared the way. He called, the, he called us to return to the place of our wilderness wandering, to repent and to renew our statuses as sons and daughters of God. And he also said there will be a stronger one who would give us the spirit. And that's what we're going to see as the gospel of Mark unfolds. And so when our institutions crumble or burn, what we see here is that that's okay. We'll, we'll survive that. We'll have a chance to turn things around and to turn ourselves around because God is going to meet us and restore us in our wilderness wanderings. So scene three, Jesus, uh, God's anointed king, brings justice nonviolently in the midst of these, this calamity. He brings justice nonviolently through his patient faithfulness. That's the, what I get out of this text today. And so what we read then is real briefly at about that time, Jesus <laughs> marched down 90 miles from Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan river. And as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I dearly love, in you I find happiness. Now, one of the things that scholars recognize, you may recognize that language of, of delight appears in many of the Psalms, so the Psalms that were used at coronation ceremonies. And the one that is quoted here is the, from Psalm 2, verse 7, where it says, I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
So what we see is uh, also that language is conflated. Once again, very creatively by Mark, uh, that language of sonship is conflated with that language of that described the suffering servant in Isaiah, where where Isaiah spoke about the servant who would would help redeem the world, who would who on the day of the Lord bring us all back to God into the into the. Uh, um, way of love that God calls us to. And, and he says that uh, here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And of course, that's what we see in this passage. We see the tearing of the heavens. And that means that heaven and earth that were known to be separated are no longer separated. We're going to see that again when Jesus is baptized by the cross, if you will. And then the descent of the spirit. Well, that marks him as royalty, the, the anointed one. That the, the word anointed that we've been seeing is the word Christos, from which we get the word Christ. And so it marks him as the Messiah. And of course, the voice of God makes it very clear that this Jesus is the son of God and the king. And he's also the servant we've been waiting for. And so what we see is this paradox, this paradox of one who would lead us out of our current situation, but he would tell us how to get there uh, by pointing to the way of, of self-offering, of suffering, of patient faithfulness rather than violence. And then scene three, what we see real briefly is Jesus's God, God's own anointed king brings justice nonviolently through patient uh, faithfulness. And so uh, we get into now scene four, which is hardly given any time. And Mark gets a lot of time in Matthew. Uh, the spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness, and then he was tempted for 40 days. Uh, he was among the wild animals and the angels took care of him. Now, uh, one of the things that's evoked here is Psalm 91, the language that picks up here, where, where it talks about the Lord. It said, when the Lord is our refuge, God commands God's angels to guard us in all our ways. On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And that's what we see, this, these two sentences that uh, make up the story of Jesus's temptation over 40 days are quite significant. Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for uh, this test. And so we, it's sort of like the beginning of Job, where Job says, okay, I'm going to let you tempt him, Satan. And, uh, and so Jesus then experiences the wilderness character that is the essence of our lives so often in this fallen world of this. And he experiences it in the two ways that we experience it. In, in terms of the physical adversity, many of you today are experiencing that adversity, struggling with health issues, struggling uh, um, with, with just advancing age. And then with spiritual adversity, temptation, this notion of, of uh, being tempted. Uh, tempted doesn't mean uh, simply temptation towards um, uh, things, for example, of the flesh. Temptation, perhaps the greatest temptation that I know, is the temptation to quit. The temptation to say, I am not worthy. The temptation to say that this life is not living. This temptation that, that to, uh, to accept uh, Satan's verdict on us rather than God's. Also, we note that Jesus was protected by the angels. What does that mean? Well, according to the story in Kings about Elijah, he also was protected by the angels. In that case, for 40 days, he gave them food, but he was protected by angels. And the good news out of this is that uh, Jesus emerges from this. And then scholars point to this point as the point where we can look back and see Jesus defeated the strong man, the strong man being the devil.
Jesus bound up the strong man, bound him up for Jesus, and he bound him up for us so that we no longer have to be fearful as long as we draw near to Jesus. In the last scene, we see that the good news is on its way. But to benefit, we actually have to trust it. After John was arrested, Jesus came into galaxy, uh, Gal- Galilee announcing the good news. And he's saying, now is the time. God's kingdom is here. Change your hearts and lives and trust the good news. That was Jesus's message. Well, that's pretty clear. Immediacy, urgency, the time is now, which implies that God is in charge, that all that we've been going through is part of the economy of salvation, that God has been allowing us to live in this wilderness time. But now the time is now for the kingdom to be inaugurated. And that's, of course, the story that Mark is going to be telling, the story of God inaugurating God's kingdom on earth through the sun. Um, But what it means for us, what it means for the world, what it meant for the Christians that were in Palestine in 66 to 70, what it meant for the Christians and the Jews in in Rome as they saw Rome burning and they saw Christians being killed and they saw uh, three emperors in one year uh, before Vespasian took over, uh, is that you need to learn we must see the world in a new way. We must have a new worldview, Jesus's worldview. We need to adapt that. We need to learn what that is and to live by it and then face the world and face the future in a new way. And the way I summarize that is we need to learn to walk the way of love. Of course, walking means trusting that map, uh, that map that Jesus gives us. uh, One must trust the good news about God's kingdom in order to actually benefit from your citizenship in that kingdom. The fact of Jesus being the king is not very helpful if you don't actually participate in his kingdom uh, by living according to his way. And so the good news is on its way, but to benefit We need to announce it. We need to draw near to Jesus. We need to be alongside him on the trail. We need to trust in that good news. So I think this is a wonderful word to us in our time. I hope you do as well. God is near. God is the true king. Jesus is the son who will lead us through the wilderness of this time, this era. There's cause for hope. The good news is on its way, folks. What better news is there than that? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.